Welcome to the BGSM podcast with me, Stefan Griffin. Today I'm joined by Dr. Ender King, Head of Performance Rehabilitation at the Sports Surgery Clinic in Dublin and world leading authority on hip, groin and ACL injuries. So we're recording this as part of the Arsenal Sports Medicine E-Edition. So welcome to the podcast, Ender. Thank you very much, Stefan. Great to chat to you. Amongst a host of other things, your group at Santria are internationally renowned for your impactful, high-quality biomechanical studies um, and, the, and your approach to injuries. Um, have you seen a landscape shift when it comes to recognising the role of biomechanical factors and in injuries over the last few years? Yeah, I think our, our primary use of biomechanics and, and how we're trying to use it in research is probably twofold. Number one is to get a better better understanding of pathomechanics, maybe how we end up with these either acute uh, traumatic knee injuries or, or chronic overuse injuries, whether that's in the foot, ankle, the knee or the hip. And secondly, then when we're trying to transition players through rehabilitation and back to return to play, number one is what influences our program having on mechanics, on how athletes move, on, on the qualities they produce and how they can adapt those movements into more chaotic positions. And also two, when we're trying to make decisions around transitions back to training and back to, to, to full competitive involvement, um, what metrics can we use to try and, and guide us along the rehabilitation pathway to say that we've reached a, a, a predefined level of success, whether that's good enough or not, and uh, that's something we can, we can discuss later, but that at least we, we, we have some benchmark to measure against. In, in previously, a, a lot of rehabilitation and return to play measures were on outcomes relation to jump performance in terms of height or length or, or strength measures. Um, but obviously, that's only a, a piece of the jigsaw in terms of the force that you can produce. The movement that you use to produce that force is, is incredibly important as well, not only from a, an injury point of view, but also from a performance point of view. And so you're seeing an improved, and obviously technology has assisted with that uh, in terms of everyone has iPhones now and, and the use of at least 2D analysis, as well as the proliferation of, of force plates available uh, in, in elite clubs, but also now increasingly in private practice settings. It's made the technology and the analysis more accessible, but also I suppose our, our professions are, are drifting towards the need for more objective measures and better understand how athletes are moving during rehabilitation and towards return to play. When progressing through the return to play process, obviously this e-edition is focusing more around complex uh, knee injuries. In regards to knee injuries in particular, what are some of the key biomechanical and then clinical milestones that you personally want to see from some of your athletes before they start progressing along the kind of the rehab continuum? Yeah, I think you're you're trying to create a, a profile of your athlete. Um, and, and what you feel is relevant specific to their knee injury. And then there'll be their knee injury and, and perhaps the additional trauma of, of surgery that may have occurred afterwards. So you're trying to get some metrics uh, around strength. Um, you're trying to then have a look at their jumping and landing mechanics uh, in terms of not only their, their, their kinematics and in, in how they control the foot, knee, ankle, especially in the, in the frontal plane, but more increasingly, uh, their ability to control the knee in the sagittal plane and control that interior t- tibial translation, progressing that forward into how they use those qualities towards uh, running mechanics, especially in mid-stance, and also in change direction mechanics. And obviously, there's a huge element, not only, I suppose, going back to your initial question around where where our understanding or our rehabilitation has been improved by biomechanics, our ability to look at eccentric forces and our capacity to absorb load and the speed at which we can absorb load is incredibly important. And so trying to set that profile through of, you know, how about the ability, how about the strength to, to produce force? Uh, number two is, can I produce that at speed, concentrically and eccentrically? And my jump tests normally give us a, a, a picture around that. And then secondarily on top of that, then how am I expressing these qualities 
in more complex movement patterns, such as running in such a change of direction. So trying to piece our way through that should give us an overall profile of where the athlete is at currently. And that allows us to be very specific then in how we target our rehabilitation to, to get them from A to B as quickly as possible. Have you been surprised or have you seen a certain pattern of deficits or biomechanical patterns in some of these patients and athletes following uh, this injury at all? There, I mean, are obviously individual deficits, but if you could suggest three themes that, that are quite consistent, number one is insufficient recovery of, of quad-specific strength, both concentrically and eccentrically. And that deficit tends to have a, a role, a knock-on effect. As a result, then they tend to have poor capacity eccentrically during their plyometrics um, and during their uh, landing exercises uh, and ability to produce force uh, eccentrically at speed. Because of that, you get them either landing in quite a rigid or more extended knee position or the opposite where they buckle forward and the knee collapses into flexion. You get a much stronger and aggressive tibial acceleration, which obviously is going to have influence on anterior knee load and anterior tibial translation. And number three then is even despite the fact that they have sufficient strength, that they've good landing mechanics and, and, and good capacity to absorb load at speed, not transferring those qualities uh, in particular into change of direction mechanics where even though you, just because they have land, good landing technique or good landing capacity, whatever the hell good is, that those qualities have not been transferred into multiple planes or into multiple planes in a more chaotic uh, environment or in response to a chaotic stimulus. And you see that in particular around change direction where you still get athletes who go to do sidestepping or, or change direction with a more externally rotated foot one side compared to the other, maybe with or without a, a loss of control at the hip and knee in the frontal plane and certainly loss of center of mass control relative to the stance leg. Whereas when you look at their strength, their strength will be up to speed or at least what you've set them as, as baseline measures. Um, same with their jumping and landing capacity, but they have not redeveloped that coordination uh, or, or, or more complex movement pattern back again. So I would say that, that certainly the quadriceps strength, then the ability to use that eccentrically at speed, whether that's plyometrically or more longer landings or more demanding landings, and then expressing that through, through a sidestep or change direction, they tend to be the three biggest themes um, that would be consistent across athletes. For each of those three things, what should clinicians be thinking? What have you found really useful from a practical point of view to address some of, some of those deficits and, and some of those clinical concerns? Yeah, there's definitely no, no magic formula or, or def- there's no magic formula here, here in Dublin. I think if, if, if I could offer any piece of advice, it would be that the day before surgery or the day after injury, can you write down what you want the end of rehabilitation to look like? That allows you to measure or decide what, what outcomes you want to use and then program off the back of that. A lot of time you find that athletes would have done six weeks rehab or eight weeks rehab and some things will improve tremendously, but other metrics as your quadricep strength won't have. And an example of quadricep strength might be that only using closed chain movements whereby the hip can compensate for a lack of quadricep strength. So let's say your leg press, single leg squats, step ups, etc. Excellent exercises, excellent exercises early in rehab. We're trying to get that isolated quads work, whether that's through a, a split lunge targeting the, the rear foot or open chain quads work is an important component of that. And um, the second would be one of the return to play outcomes that the literature constantly uses is jump height or jump length. But again, there's a big focus there on the on the concentric rate of force, development of concentric inputs. How far or how high can I jump without necessarily the same appreciation? Can I absorb the forces that I'm producing? So you'll see often an improvement 
in, in concentric impulse asymmetry, let's say during a double leg drop jump or during a double leg counter movement jump, you'll see an improvement in asymmetry of concentric impulse throughout rehab, yet the eccentric asymmetry can often remain quite stubborn and quite persistent because most of the exercise selection is focusing on explosiveness in terms of concentric jumping rather than a matched amount, not only in terms of adding landing exercises, but a lot of our landing exercises tend to be low load, maybe a greater focus on, on motor control, avoiding that knee valgus, without also developing the capacity to absorb quite quite high loads uh, in parallel with, with that rehab stream. And so if you begin with the end of mind and say, look, we expect you to have X amount of strength. Uh, we expect you to have X amount of, of plyometric and, and eccentric rate of force capacity. We expect you, your running mechanics to, to, to grossly look like this and change direction mechanics the same. That allows you on a week by week or a month by month basis to hold a mirror up and see, is your rehabilitation going in the direction that you want it to go? And what we found most powerful, I suppose, about having biomechanics here is that the quality of your rehabilitation is getting uh, under the microscope on, on a monthly or, or, or a bi-monthly basis. Uh, if you expect to make X amount of change over an eight-week block or a six-week block, um, you'll find out quite quickly if your programming and coaching is being effective. But also it allows us to, to shine a light maybe on, on other areas, uh, in particular in relation to knee injuries, that, that ankle stiffness and that plyometric ability that we can control that anterior tibial transition. We put a huge focus on the, on, on the quad strength and on hip strength and on frontal plane hip and knee control. But uh, in male and female athletes, the primary way the, the anterior knee is loaded, and in particular the ACL, is that ability to control anterior tibial translation. And so improving our, our ankle stiffness exercises and our, and our uh, plyometric work is hugely important in parallel as well. The protocol that you have found useful and completely relevant, have you found that's changed over the last few years? And, what, and if, if it has changed, how, what does that look like at the moment for a typical patient who might have had an ACL injury? Again, if we begin with the end in mind, what would we like them to look like plyometrically on, on, on return to play? So our metric is ideally we'd like a single leg drop jump symmetry. Um, every athlete can always be better, so you can always look to improve. But a track and field athlete is going to have a different level of plyometric ability than, let's say, a field sport athlete like a football or a rugby player. So off where we find that the, the plyometric, I suppose we have a curriculum that we'd like to take them through from ankle tapping very early, post-rehab, maybe week two, week three taking that into all the double leg pogos, into alternate leg pogos, into single leg pogos, into cone hopping or hurdle hopping, into double and single leg tuck jumps. Uh, and if you can get someone to, to a level where they're doing good quality single leg tuck jumps, that's a very, very good baseline to work off uh, for a field athlete at any rate. Um, and so what we found is that a lot of the exercises are either too difficult, whereby they're doing bounding exercise where on the ground far too long, their heel is smacking off the ground, they're getting this big anterior tibial translation and getting knee pain at the same time. So often it's a case of rowing the exercises back to do perhaps simpler exercises or, or what seems simpler exercises, even though they find them extremely difficult, with good technique, and then adding the intensity within that. And in terms of the plyometric, the key is to get the ground contact speed up, uh, to get that ground contact, that short ground contact time, and then build intensity and then build more complex movements on top of that. But very often exercises that are, are, are bucketed as, as plyometric and um, the ground contact times are too long. There's a big heel smack uh, off the ground, uh, long ground contact times. We're not focusing on that Achilles or, or ankle stiffness. And so someone will have done eight or 10 weeks work uh, only to realize when you go to retest them that the quality has improved very little over that time and or 
they've, they've intermittently had knee pain while trying to carry out the exercises. We know the important role of biomechanics um, when it comes to both preventing and rehabilitating um, after knee injuries. What would your suggestion be to those working in the field who might not have the same access to some of the facilities that you have? Yeah, I think the, the key is, am I, am I measuring something? And am I measuring to the, the highest accuracy within whatever I have available to me? And, and that's important for two reasons. Number one is it allows you to goal set. You can individualize your programs depending on the athletes that's in front of you rather than, let's say, you know, I'm doing a... I'm just doing quadricep strength because they have a patellar tendinopathy when they may have sufficient quadricep strength and maybe their plyometric ability or their, their ability to produce force at speed is, is, is a deficit. Number two is I think that the proliferation of iPhones and apps with on the phones that you can use to look at athletes jumping and landing and running and change direction are, are incredibly important. We found it an extremely useful educational tool as well as a rehabilitation research tool in that <clears throat> most athletes have no idea what they're doing in terms of when they change direction so they can see that big trunk sway they can see that foot externally rotated position and then you can relate it back to the drills that you're trying to do to change that so you get much better buy-in but also they can see the week-to-week or month-to-month progress and also the the more if you want to call them advanced elements of technology in terms of force plates etc are becoming more and more cost effective and, and more and more available i think that the big challenge with 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 the more advanced, uh, if cost-effective, instrumentation is uh, a lot of clinicians may not have had a huge amount of exposure to it before. So understanding the, the validity and the reliability of, of the test that you ch- choose to use. And just because something has been shown to be valid and reliable in another environment doesn't mean that when you execute it, you're doing it in a way that's valid and reliable. So again, checking the, the, the quality of the data that you're producing, uh, understanding what's relevant uh, in terms of the metrics that you're getting, and then obviously being able to select exercise or coach programs or periodized programs that will get changed in those metrics. So I think measuring anything is better than measuring nothing. And we're obviously very fortunate in the facility that we have here. And um, but we hope that given the patient numbers that we have and the, uh, the the facilities and the technology we have access to, that we can carry out a level of research that will then disseminate down further to maybe those that don't. But number one is what can you measure? What can you be accurate with? And then use to use that to make your your your, your decisions from there. What would your, let's say, three top tips be to, to physios, to people involved in the rehab be, um, to avoid people potentially reaching you know, the stage where they're needing sort of specialist input? A plateau or, or, or a case that, that's resistant to improvement uh, is normally two or three different reasons. Number one is that the, the, the rehabilitation is based on, on maybe the site of symptoms rather than how that athlete's moving. So, for example, here's my week 12 ACL program when actually when we look at athletes are 12 weeks post ACL here I mean the variety of capacity and ability is absolutely incredible and um, same with patellar tendinopathy same with Achilles tendinopathy groin pain etc that the the programming is based on the, the site of injury rather than that individual athlete and what their strengths and weaknesses are and so number one is that ability to to to, to profile or to identify or assess the factors that you feel may be relevant to that injury in terms of strength, power and plyometric, motor control during certain tasks, whether that's squatting, landing, running, change direction, and, and, and trying to, to paint a picture of where that athlete is versus where you need them, and that will allow much more targeted rehabilitation. The second plateau is whereby my intervention, even though I've identified what needs to be done, my intervention is not affecting change. Uh, that can be for a number of different reasons. Number one is this, 
just the wrong exercise or more far more commonly it's the right exercise just not coached or executed in a way that's getting going to get an adaptation or the intensity of the exercise is not continuing to progress as the athlete adapts to the stimulus that you've given them and so if i was to offer uh, three tips in particular in relation to uh, to knee injury number one would be to have a, a metric of measuring quadricep strength um, and to ensure that my quadricep strength measures are improving throughout rehabilitation just because my back squat is going up or my leg press is going up and um, that does not mean that i'm getting targeted quadriceps activity number two is that my eccentric capacity and my plyometric ability is improving throughout and again the two reasons that tends not to happen is number one is it's not targeted specifically enough or number two is the level of exercise is, is too intense it's you, you uh, doing a drop landing from a height that's too high or plyometric activity where we're too long on the ground or the heel is hitting the ground and number three then is if if these athletes are going back to in you know change of direction maneuvers and and you know we know that 50 percent of, of of acl injuries occur during a sidestep or pivoting movement we, we need the ability or the capacity even in 2d form to assess how they're executing those movements and secondarily then to be able to modulate our, our rehabilitation especially our end stage rehabilitation to get some changes during those movements but also to bring a degree of chaos and and to make sure that those patterns are sticking in more chaotic um, environments as well so i think the ability to to go back and and write down what you think is important before the rehab process begins and write down the metrics uh, or the instruments you're going to try and use to, to measure that and to constantly be referring back to that the whole way through rehab even if you know, in the early staging, and I'll just stick with ACL as an example, but can you relate to the athlete on week seven and week eight how what you're doing now is preparing them for running and what they're doing on week eight and what nine and 10, how that's preparing them for change direction, how what you're doing on week 15 is preparing them for playing matches or maybe some game-specific scenario. It'll massively improve their buy-in and compliance, but also once you have those metrics to judge your progress again all the time, if the metrics aren't improving every four weeks, you, you'll quite quickly say there's either a compliance issue, there's an execution issue, or there's a programming issue. And uh, I think being targeted like that will, will really advance the speed of recovery uh, and improve the success rate across, across all your athletes. I think, and that probably takes us full circle in terms of going back to some of the key concepts you mentioned and some of the key themes you mentioned at the start of the podcast. I know if listeners want to hear more on, or learn more about kind of the tools and some of the exercises um, that you use at Sandra, and you're active on Twitter, it's Ender underscore King. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. Not at all. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Stefan. Thanks for listening to this BGSM podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via the usual channels if you have any questions or suggestions and have a great physically active day.